been studying the whole Bible. We're talking about God's grand plan. Uh, my contention is that the Bible tells one big comprehensive narrative. That it's one story. There's many stories, of, sh- of course, many stories. But in the end, it tells one story that fits together, that makes sense, that's compelling. And uh, it breaks down into a four-act play that we've called Creation, Fall, Restoration, and Consummation. And we're in the middle of the restoration part. We've messed up what God made good. God's trying to make it better. He's trying to fix everything that's broken. And over the weeks, we've talked about His plan. His plan is centered on a man who is to come. And over the weeks, we've heard that He's a deliverer or a great conqueror. That He's a promised Son who will be a great blessing to all the nations. One person with a worldwide scope, cosmic scope, and His uh, implications when He comes. He's supposed to be a king and a priest. And uh, we could have said more, but that was enough. And, and now, this week, after a couple thousand years of waiting, or for us, just five or six weeks, he's here, John chapter 1. So I'm going to read John 1, 1 to 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. And from this fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one's ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side, He has made Him known. All right, I'm going to pray. You can join me if you like. Our great Father, we thank You for the gift of the Bible, and we pray that You would be kind, Spirit, to uh, sharpen our minds and soften our hearts. Show us Yourself, Lord Jesus, we pray. We ask You these things in Your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. If you're a music fan, and I am, it's a great uh, time of the year. There's a lot of great albums being released or about to be released. The one I'm excited about is the Decemberist new album. Yeah, some other fans. Um, So I've been a Decemberist fan, probably like some of you, since I first heard their 2005 song, The Mariner's Revenge. The first time I ever heard the song, I thought, who in the world would write and perform the song? This is amazing. And if you haven't heard the song, or if you have, I'm going to tell you the song right now. It's about a mariner. Seeking Revenge. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing, because it's a ballad, a long one. Uh, I'll I'll get most of it so you get the story. We are two mariners, our ship's sole survivors in the belly of a whale. Its ribs are sealing beams, its guts are carpeting. I guess we have some time to kill. You may not remember me. I was a child of three, and you were a lad of 18. But I remember you, and I'll relate to you how our histories interweave. At the time, you were a rake and a roustabout, spending all your money on the whores and hounds. 
You had a charming air. You were cheap and debonair. My widowed, my widowed mother found so sweet, so she took you in. Her sheets were still warm with him, but it's now filled with your filth and foul disease. As time wore on, you proved a debt-ridden, drunken mess, leaving my mother a poor, consumptive wretch. And then you disappeared. Your gambling arrears were the only things you left behind, and then the magistrate. He reclaimed our small estate, and my poor mother lost her mind. Then one day in the spring, my dear mother died. But before she did, I took her hand as she, dying, cried. Find him. Bind him. Tie him to a pole and break his fingers to splinters. Drag him to a hole until he wakes up naked, clawing at the ceiling of his grave. It's good stuff. <laughs> and so that's what he does. He uh, finds a boat. He joins a crew. They track after this captain. A giant whale destroys both ships. They're the only two that are left that survive. And in the belly of the whale... The song ends with these words, Oh, what providence, what divine intelligence, that you should survive as well as me. It gives my heart great joy to see your eyes fill with fear. So lean in close, and I will whisper the last words you hear. And then the, uh, the chorus picks up, and it's almost gleeful in its joy, uh, as we assume the mariner gets his revenge. Uh, you listen to the song, and it is an upbeat delightful song. It really is a upbeat, delightful. You cannot help but like it, right? Everyone listens to it. And it, it says something. I was looking up a, a list of like the, the most famous or, or best revenge films. And every list I looked at was different. And it's because we love revenge. We like revenge. Revenge sells. Revenge is beautiful. It is. Revenge is beautiful. In some ways, it is sweet justice, and we like to see it when it happens. Now let's review our story. Our story thus far is that God made a world that was perfect for mankind, and we doubted the Father, and so we rebelled against Him, and went in league with His enemy, and uh, we then suffered the consequences of that decision, and we still suffer the consequences every day. God, instead of getting rid of us, made a promise to pursue His people, and He did that. He made uh, these people His own. He rescued them from slavery in Egypt. He rescued them from their oppressors. He made them a great nation. He dwelt with them as a faithful husband. And they went and worshipped other gods over and over and over. So he gave them prophets that told them about himself and his promises and his love and his mercy. And they killed those prophets. So he gave them more prophets to warn them about the way they were living and what would happen. And they killed those prophets. So here we are, after a couple thousand years of this mess... And he sends his own son. What do you think will happen? I mean, knowing what we know about the way people work, and what we've done to God for a couple thousand years, I'd say it's time for revenge. I mean, the way the story typically works is either they will kill the son, which does happen, or God will have his revenge. I mean, actually, revenge seems like a perfectly reasonable response. Am I wrong? Revenge is sweet, right? Well, uh, this story in John 1 is absolutely astounding. And we're sort of deaf to it because we've heard it so many times. Here in the West, we've heard this story over and over. Jesus came from God. He loves us. And we've sort of lost track and lost sight of just how amazing it is. Every part of this story is amazing. It really is. Every part of this story is amazing. We have every right to expect the Son to come and execute revenge. 
really. Why wouldn't he? Instead, he comes in order to return us to the Father. In Jesus, God returns that we might know the Father's love. That's what this text is about. And we're going to talk about how Jesus returns and how he reveals the Father's goodness and how he restores or recovers us that we might live in the Father's love. Okay? So, the first thing we have here is the return of the King. And uh, in some ways, Jesus is, in this text, returning. Our text, in all its uh, philosophical abstraction in the first couple of verses, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. You're reading that and you're saying, is he trying to be as abstract as possible? Um, a little bit. He's saying a bunch of things that a bunch of different kind of people will understand. But what he's saying is, in the very beginning, before there was anything else besides God, there was God. And there was more than one person. There was a father, and there was another. And that what we have in the person of Jesus is the eternal Son. An eternal Son. He was, in the beginning, with God. It's just logically that means there was someone eternally with God the Father. And that is the Son, Jesus. He's not only the eternal Son, He's also the eternal Creator. And that's what verses 3, 4, and 5 tell us. That all things were made through Him. And uh, to make the point even more strongly, he says it again a different way, without him was not anything made that was made. So, uh, in other words, not one jot and tittle, not one iota, not uh, every single blasted thing. He made every single blasted thing. That's what John's saying. Jesus is the Son, the Eternal Son, the Eternal Son that made everything. And so what you have then in the return of Jesus is Jesus coming home in some ways. In verses 9 and 11, this true light, as John calls him, he comes into the world. Verse 10 tells us he's in the world, and even though the world, he made the world, the world doesn't recognize him. And then there's this really interesting thing in verse 11, that he came to his own. Verse 11, um, he came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. That word own, the first one, is his own place. His own home. The thing he made. His place. He came to his own thing. His own place. And no one there knew him. You haven't been gone from home very long, so that doesn't happen to you. It happens to me. I sort of like it, because I don't like people. Um, so I go home and no one knows me, and I'm like, oh, that's great. But, um, I'm kidding. I really do like people, but just not much. And, um... But Jesus comes back, he makes everything, and no one recognizes him. And that's partly because of the way he returns. He returns in frail humanity. Verse 14, this word, who existed with God, who is the eternal Son, he takes flesh. He becomes flesh. Um, Now, I have a feeling, a pretty strong feeling, that the first time this book was read to an audience, they reacted very differently than you. You just sat there and took it like you knew it was coming. The first audience would have mostly said, if they were Greek or if they were Jewish, you've got to be kidding me. That's absolutely insane. It seems like we're the only people in the world that this isn't a shock for. Everyone else in the world, this would be a shock. Do you have the, uh, the graphic? All right, so you may have seen this a couple years ago. I use this in my science and faith seminar. So there are a couple of different ways of viewing the way God interacts with his world. This will not be long, uh, I promise, so don't get lost. Uh, if you're from the East, perhaps you're a Buddhist, uh, you could be what we call pantheism. And C.S. Lewis describes it uh, this way. 
um, among the pantheists, like uh, the Hindus or Buddhists, anyone might say he was a part of God and one with God. That would be nothing very odd about that. Uh, God dwells so closely to his creation that they're completely inseparable. That's the way the East often views it. Uh, the way the Bible views things and the way our Greek-influenced culture views it is the second one, that God created the world very different than himself. God's the blue, the world's the yellow, and they don't mix. What Scripture teaches is this last one, that God is different than his creation, but overlaps with it. So, a good faithful Jew would have expected God to be involved with his creation, to be close to his creation, to interact with his creation, but to become part of the creation? Unbelievable. No way. So, uh, Lewis writes, uh, This man, Jesus, since he was a Jew, could not mean that kind of God. God in the language meant the being outside the world who had made it and was infinitely different from anything else. When you've grasped that, you'll see that what this man said, what Jesus said, was simply the most shocking thing that's ever been said by human lips. God was born into the world as an actual man, a real man, of a particular height, with hair of a particular color, speaking a particular language, weighing so many pounds. The eternal God who created everything, who knows everything, was a baby. And was a baby in a woman's belly. Friends, that's astounding. That's absolutely astounding. That the God who created everything would take human flesh. Would become a baby. And become a man. And that's what Jesus did. That's what this text says happened. That Jesus took human flesh. That he wanted to interact with the creation that closely. Because he had a purpose. This is how the king returns. And when he returns, he goes unrecognized. Verse 10 tells us he's even rejected. We'll see that more as we go along. But why? Why would God do this at all? This is incredibly humbling. Lewis goes on to write that the closest we could get to this kind of transformation, this kind of humbling, would be to imagine what it's like to be a slug. Uh, I'm not quite sure that's fair. I think God thinks more highly of us than we think of slugs. Um, But something along those lines... So why does God, in the person of Jesus, do this? Why is it necessary? Why does he do it? And uh, we see in our text that he does it to reveal God's glory, his goodness. So this is the second, I think, shock of the text. The first is that God would become flesh at all. The second is that he would take flesh and come among us, sort of hidden in the flesh, not to spy us out and seek revenge, which I think is perfectly logical, actually, um, but to show us God's goodness. I mean, God's been trying that for a couple thousand years, showing us His goodness. It hasn't worked. Same old plan, God? Same old plan. I'll keep showing you my goodness. And what we have in Jesus is a living portrait. So verse 18 sort of mirrors verse 1. They sort of uh, bookends. They hold the thing together. In verse 18, we see that this word uh, makes the Father known. That's really interesting because verse 18 tells us that no one's ever seen God. And have you seen God? Of course not. Um, The only God who's at the Father's side has made him known. If you know the Bible at all, you'll look back and say, well, there are a couple people that sort of saw God. Moses sort of saw like the afterglow of his behind glory, something like that. I don't really else. That's the best, the red shift of his glory as he moved away. Um, Something like that. And even then, God's like, don't look at me. And God gives him a definition of his character. And that's about the best we get in the Old Testament. Isaiah gets a vision of the hem of his robe, and he's almost completely overwhelmed by it. 
Uh, and what we have here, this text is saying, Jesus is the spitting image of the Father. He is the Father in all His goodness come in the flesh. He is a living portrait. He tells the story of what God is like by His being, by His words, by His life, by His actions. Jesus makes the Father known. And He acts just like His Father. Verse 14, the Word becomes flesh. And what does He do? He dwells among us. It's exactly what God did. God was not too important in His own eyes to dwell with His own people. He dwelt with His own people in a tent, in a tabernacle, in a, in a, in a temple. Uh, even when they were unfaithful, He stayed. He wanted to be near them. He wanted to be with them. And Jesus dwells with His people. He wants to be near His people. He wants to make God known. And uh, as He does so, we see His goodness. Verse 14, The Word became flesh, dwelt among us, we've seen His glory. That's a word we never use. How many of you used the word glory in the last week? I mean, you think it's even possible? Any of you think you've even used the word glory? We don't use it. And I think it's good that we don't use it because it's a really powerful word. Um, it, it means in the original language something that's really heavy but beautiful. Heavy but beautiful. Something that's heavy, meaningful, significant, but so beautiful it moves you to praise. That you just can't help but be astounded by it and praise it. That the words just sort of flow from you. Uh, that you boast in it because it's so wonderful. And what, we, what this text tells us is uh, Jesus' glory is His goodness. It's His goodness. It's his, the fact that He's full of grace and truth. That's what verse 14 says. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus' glory is His goodness. And His goodness is defined by His grace and truth. Uh, if you've been around this semester, you may have remembered, probably not, uh, a couple weeks ago, I did a whole sermon on these two things. This is what God's all about. Grace and truth. When he revealed himself to Moses, he told Moses, I'm going to show you my glory. I'm going to show you my goodness. He told Moses, I'm going to show you my goodness. And then he said, I'm a God. I'm the Lord, compassionate and merciful, full of loving kindness and truth. He used these two words, full of grace and truth. Uh, This is the essence of God's character, the essence of His love. He is loving, and it's a love you don't deserve. It's a gracious love, and He is faithful. He makes a promise to you, He'll keep it. That's the essence of His love, of His goodness. He is loving, and you don't deserve it, and He's faithful when you're not. That is His glory, and that is His goodness. And that's what Jesus has come to put on display for the world to see, that this is what God's like. So, uh, Because you're all gossips, we pretty much are all gossips. We talk about people. This will be easy for you to think about. Um, Imagine you're at the porch, and uh, you're conversing with a group of friends there about someone who's not there, like Kelly Saul. She's not here. So you're talking about Kelly Saul, and uh, you're you're trying to figure out um, why she did this or that. And then all of a sudden, as you reach for a slice of egg and bacon pizza, which they now serve, can't wait for that. Um, Kelly Saul wakes up, walks up, and joins your conversation. How does that change the conversation? Well, most likely you either act like it never happened and change the subject, or you just get honest and ask her. Right? And that's what we have here. 
In Jesus, God has crashed our conversation, our dinner chat, all our philosophizing about what God is like, and all our polite conversations about what God might be doing. And he says, if you really want to know what God's like, I'm right here. If you want to know what God's like, look at me. I've come here to make the Father known. Watch me, study me, follow me, study my life, and I'll show you what God the Father is like. That's what Jesus is offering us in this text and in the Bible. But not just to inform us, not just that we know more about God, but so we will join His family. He's come on a mission, a recovery mission. And we see in our text that He's come to give. Actually, if you look through the text, you'll see the word give a lot. He comes and gives away a lot of things. He's very generous. But the first thing He gives is light. This is not a very kind gift, but it's a good one. He is the light. That's what verses 3 and 4 tell us. And in verse 9, we see this light which enlightens everyone is coming into the world. What does light do? It shows you what's there. Do you want to see what's there? You ever been around someone who's just so good and loving that you want to strangle them? I'm serious. Yeah, I've got some people shaking their head. Uh, there's a pretty famous story about a pro golfer. He's playing a, a, a round of a, a pro-am tournament with Jack Nicholas, President Gerald Ford, this was a long time ago, and uh, the Reverend Billy Graham. Most of these guys are dead now. Um, so I didn't hear about this story firsthand, by the way. Um, after the round was over, uh, one of the golfers asked one of the, the pro golfers, what was it like playing with the President and Billy Graham? And uh, the pro said with disgust, I don't need Billy Graham shoving his religion down my throat. And he stormed off. His friend uh, followed him, and the, the golfer uh, hit it over to the uh, practice tee and pounded out a ball, uh, a, a basket of balls in, uh, in fury. And uh, when he was done, he asked, uh, was Billy a little bit hard on you out there? And the pro sighed and said with some embarrassment, No. He didn't even mention religion. You know what happened, right? Simply by being a normal, loving person, by being light, Billy Graham threw light onto this guy's frustration, perfection, anger, and made him feel terrible about himself. This has happened to you. And you need to know that Jesus does this. He does. He throws light on us. If you will study his life, you will find yourself feeling pretty not loving and dirty in comparison. And that's good. Because no one else is going to be that honest with you. Your friends aren't going to be that honest with you. Your family probably won't be that honest with you. But Jesus will be that honest with you. It's not good news if it stops there. That's just despair if you stop there. Uh, The good news is he's also very gracious. He gives light, but he also gives grace. Be quiet. The uh, verse 14, 15, we see that Jesus, who's full of truth and grace, gives us in verse 16, grace upon grace. He's full of grace. There's a superabundance of grace, of mercy and forgiveness and grace for those that draw near to him. This is what Jesus offers us. Grace. And away back to the Father in verse 12. He gives the right to all who receive Him, who believe in His name, the right to become children of God. So the final portrait is this. The only Son of the Father, 
who's with him forever, takes flesh, comes all the way down to a bunch of rebels who don't love his father, and shows us what the father's like, and then makes a way for us to come back to the father and join his family. That's an amazing story. It really is an amazing story. We haven't got to the costly stuff yet, but it's an amazing story. There really is every reason to expect God just to be angry, judgmental, and vengeful. But this story tells us He wants us to come to Him. And He's made a way for us to do that. It's, uh, again, in our culture, it's really hard to hear this with new ears. We've heard this a thousand times. You're used to hearing the story, yeah, Jesus came for me, I got it. Um, so, your familiarity breeds contempt. You're just tired of the story, it doesn't mean much to you, as much as it should. So, let me at least try to show you how if not powerful the story is, at least how remarkable it is, how insane it is in some ways. Uh, Dorothy Sayers, any any of you read any of her books or uh, watched any of her movies? She was a renowned British poet, playwright, essayist. Uh, She wrote just about everything. She was one of the very first women to ever graduate from Oxford, so she was much smarter than you and me. Uh, she's best known for her mystery stories, uh, and especially about Lord Peter Wimsley. Uh, there's still movies being made about these characters. Uh, about At one point in the, in the series, maybe about halfway through, maybe the fifth or sixth book, Lord Peter Wimsley's in a, in a bad way. <laughs> he's lonely. He's not doing well. And a Miss Harriet Vane shows up in the stories. She gets to know Peter Wimsey. They work on a few mysteries together. They fall in love. They get married, they have some kids, life everywhere, all that stuff that happens. They have bad backs, kids need their butts wiped. She didn't write about those things. Sorry, I was thinking about my own life. And um, anyway, interestingly enough, you read Harriet Vane, you get to know her. Harriet Vane, interestingly enough, is one of the very first women to graduate from Oxford. She's a writer of detective stories. Who is Harriet Vane? It's Dorothy Sayers. She wrote herself into the story. Uh, She created a character and a world, Lord Peter Wimsey and his world. And she came to love them so much that she put herself in the story. That's pretty interesting. And uh, that's sort of like what Jesus has done. He created all of it, and we've made a big mess of it. And instead of drawing away, or just enjoying life with his father, he wrote himself into the story. He took flesh. He came down to show us what the father is like and to make a way for us to come back to the father. So what are we supposed to do then? Uh, This text doesn't tell us to do much, but a few things. Jesus does all the work. He does all the coming and all the showing and all the making. Uh, We're just called to receive. Verse 12, "To to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So, uh, this is where uh, I would say you need to receive Him. Uh, in RUF, I don't call people forward to make a profession of faith. We don't do that. But if, you, uh, if you're not a Christian, you don't understand this, you're not sure you believe this, all I'm asking you to do is to make a serious study of the person of Jesus. This text claims that Jesus came to show us what the Father's like. He's the Father in the flesh. If you want to know what God's like, study His life. If you need help, I'll help you. I'll do it with you. It'll be good for me. And uh, if you're a Christian, what are you called to do? 
Well, you're called to do the same thing. You're called to continue to receive Him, to trust in Him, to draw near to the Father, and to realize what verse 14 says. You're a child of the Father. Not because of anything you've done. Not because you made a great decision. Not because you're wonderful. Not because of your blood, your family, or your flesh, or your efforts. Because God was kind to you. So be thankful. Be thankful. Draw near to the Father. Tell other people about Jesus. Invite them in so they can hear about Him. That's what we're called to do. This really is an amazing story. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You for this story, and we pray that You would give us soft hearts and sharp minds and maybe new ears to hear it. Uh, It's amazing how we can be dull to an amazing story. Um, So show us what it's like for God to become flesh. To, to humble yourself that much and to love us that much to draw near. May we be moved by it. I pray for those here that uh, aren't clear about Christianity or clear about who you are, Lord Jesus, that you would make yourself known to them. If you're real, show yourself to them. And give them the desire and the, and the discipline, Lord, to sit down and study you and what you've done. We pray that you would do this, uh, that you would show us your beauty. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's 10 o'clock, and uh, we're going to be done with everything because the porch closes at 11. So, sorry, music.